Hi everyone, I hope you're all doing so well and welcome back to the Criminal Makeup Podcast. Each episode, we dive into the minds of some of the worst criminals in history. And today we're going to be talking about the case of Cameron Hooker and wow, prepare yourselves for this one. This is definitely an intense one. This case is most commonly known as the girl in the box and it's one of the most extreme cases of abduction and captivity that I've ever heard. The victim in this case was a 20 year old woman named Colleen Stan who was abducted by Cameron Hooker and held captive for seven years. And the horrific conditions and just the pure isolation that Colleen Stan had to endure are truly just terrifying. Now, I have to warn you, this is going to be a lot. It's not going to be an easy case to listen to. This case is one of the cases that has actually really affected me and still affects me today. During my research, I had to keep taking breaks, which there are only a handful of cases where I actually do have to take a lot of breaks because they're so heavy. And this was one of them. Like this case is just so intense that it seems too far-fetched, even for a horror film. If this was a film that you would put on, you would want to turn it off because it's that disturbing. This case of Cameron Hooker is truly the stuff of nightmares. So prepare yourselves for this one. This is not going to be for everyone. So if you don't like detail and heavy cases, maybe skip this one. But we do have a lot to get through. This case is very complex. So let's just dive in. Okay, I think we all just need to take a deep breath right now because this case is a lot. So Cameron Hooker was born on the 5th of November, 1953, making him a Scorpio. But you know what? He's not even human. So let's just disregard that. Like seriously, Cameron Hooker is one of the most evil people I've ever read about. He was born in Altoras. Is that how you pronounce it? Altoras, Altoras, California. Another Californian case. I'm really sorry, guys, for all of you live in California. We definitely need to uh, explore more of the US than just California. So he was born in Altoras, California to parents Harold and Marina. And there's definitely not too much information about Cameron's upbringing, about his childhood, but I do know that the family moved around a lot because of his dad's work. So Cameron, for a lot of his childhood and his teenage years, lacked a permanent home, which definitely would have an effect on a child, on anyone. But overall, by people that knew him, he was described as a happy kid just normal, happy kid, no issues. And not much else is really known about Cameron's family, about his upbringing, apart from in 1968, the family did move to Red Bluff, California. And this is the location where today's case does take place. Cameron is about 16 when the family do move to Red Bluff, California. And it's said that around this time, but to be honest, it probably happened before that, but this is what I read. It said that around 16 was when he started to become more withdrawn from just society in general. He was becoming very awkward, very closed off. He didn't really have many friends. And Cameron spent a lot of time on his own, like in lunch breaks, at school. He didn't have anyone to sit with. He didn't have anyone to hang around with. It was around the time when he was 16 that he started to form some pretty disturbing, disgusting uh, fantasies. So he'd started to collect magazines 
porno magazines about S&M and bondage. And he started to fantasize about dominating women and tying them up. But what made these fantasies just truly disturbing and dark is that he didn't want the woman that he was performing these acts with to give consent. That is what turned him on, about forcing himself on a woman, about taking complete control and the woman not consenting. So he graduated high school in 1972 and straight out of high school, he worked at a lumber mill. And when he left high school, this is when he decided, you know what, I actually wanna carry out some of these fantasies that I'm having. So it is around when he is 19 years old that he meets 15 year old Janice, yes. 15. Janice is a child and Janice is actually a really important character in this whole story. So yeah, Janice is a child at this point and Cameron is a 19 year old adult. I know that 19 is still young. I, I know that, but he is still an adult and there is definitely a power imbalance here. And Janice is definitely at least what we know of anyway, Janice is Cameron's first victim. Janice came from a very strict, a very religious family. She was the youngest of four children and she definitely didn't have the best relationship with her parents. She was often neglected. She didn't really get any attention from her parents. And Janice's dad was really distant from Janice. Now, this next part, I couldn't confirm. Like, I think it is true, but like, I couldn't confirm it completely. But um, it said that Janice, suffered from epilepsy when she was younger um, and her dad thought that she was possessed by demons so he didn't want anything to do with her. So yeah, there was all of that situation going on. And Janice's mom only ever gave Janice attention just to tell her that she was disappointed in her, that she was worthless. Like she would never give her any positive attention. It was always negative. And Janice's parents were really strict, especially when it came to boys. They never let Janice have any boyfriends or anything like that. So when Cameron Hooker came along, um, Janice was probably expecting her parents to be like, no, you can't see this man, blah, blah, blah. But Janice's parents were really accepting of Cameron. They were accepting of this 19 year old man dating their 15 year old daughter. Make that make sense. So Janice and Cameron started dating. And as you can imagine from Janice's upbringing, Janice had a lot of confidence issues. She had very, very low self-esteem, which is why Cameron chose her. Let's not beat around the bush there. People like Cameron know how to choose their victims and he would have chose Janice because of how vulnerable she was. So Cameron knew exactly what tactics to use to charm and manipulate Janice. So in the beginning of the relationship, he was really nice, he was really charming, he would buy her gifts. And Janice had never experienced this kind of love and attention before, even though it wasn't love. I mean, it's pretty clear to all of us that it was just a manipulation tactic, but Janice didn't see that. But this is just what Cameron did to manipulate Janice and to control Janice and be able to do whatever he wanted with Janice because Janice has later confessed that Cameron was abusing her from the very first date. Yes, on their very first date. Oh my God, it just makes me sick and angry. Cameron had convinced Janice to take part in one of his sexual fantasies. So on their first date, I just want to stress, I can't. This was on their first date. Cameron took Janice into the woods. He undressed her. He tied her to a tree and he began whipping her. I have no words. There are going to be so many times in this case 
Well, I literally have no words. And their relationship pretty much carried on like this for the next few months. And actually it goes on for years where Cameron would coerce Janice in taking part in his sexual fantasies. But then after Janice had participated in his sick fantasies, he would be really nice to her. He would be kind to her. He would buy her gifts. He would be loving towards her. He would basically do anything to keep Janice on his side. And Janice wanted no part in these sexual fantasies. They were not her cup of tea. So she didn't consent ever really, um, but she went along with his fantasies because of how he treated her after, if that makes sense. And the abuse of Janice just continued. Cameron would regularly take Janice into the woods. He would handcuff her with some handmade handcuffs and hang her by her wrists in a tree. How painful would that be? And this would be when Cameron would just continually whip her. There is no doubt in my mind, Cameron is a sexual sadist. He gets off on inflicting pain on others. And then in January, 1975, the dates are a little bit wishy-washy when they first started going out. So this is approximately two to three years after they first started going out. Cameron approached Janice's parents to ask them for their permission for him to marry Janice. And of course, Janice's parents seem to really like Cameron. Don't know why, they agreed. And once they were married, the relationship didn't change. Cameron continued to force Janice into participating in his sexual fantasies. But why are we even calling them fantasies? Because it's just torture. However, a year later in 1976, Janice had finally decided that she had had enough. Janice approached Cameron and told him that she wanted a baby. And therefore all of these sexual acts, this torture, needed to stop. And in order for Cameron to agree to this, they did come to an agreement. So Cameron said that he would give Janice what she wanted, as long as Cameron could get a sex slave in return. Cameron wasn't interested in having an open relationship or just seeing other people. No, Cameron wanted to kidnap a woman, hold her captive, take her as his sex slave, without the woman giving consent. Because at the end of the day, that is what got Cameron off, the lack of consent. And unbelievably, Janice agreed. She said, okay, let's do it. Janice told Cameron that he was allowed to perform sexual acts with his sex slave, but he wasn't allowed to have actual sex with the sex slave. I'm just like, <laughs> I'm sorry, do you find that too far? It's like, oh my God. And this is where this case starts to get a little bit difficult. It starts to get a little bit tricky, especially for me, because I really don't know where I stand a lot of the time. But this is where Janice starts to toe the line of becoming a perpetrator herself, becoming a willing participant herself. And you'll definitely know what I mean by that the further we go in the case. But it's just really difficult because obviously Janice is a victim. There is no disputing that whatsoever. But there are definitely things that Janice does in this case that are completely unforgivable as well. So after this agreement with Janice, Cameron is pretty much rubbing his hands together and he starts to plan and prepare everything to kidnap someone. And in the house that Janice and Cameron are living in, there is a basement. So over the next few months, Cameron goes about turning that basement into his torture chamber. He attached a beam to the ceiling where he would hang his victim. He also constructed this torture table situation. Like I don't even know how to describe it that he was gonna strap his victim to as well. And he even built this large 
wooden box that was barely bigger than a coffin that he could lock his victim in. And during the months of preparation, Cameron did take Janice down to the basement so he could test out all of his homemade equipment. And I mean, can you believe it? I mean, Janice is pregnant, by the way, at this point when he's testing out all of this stuff on her. And it was during this time where he was building his torture chamber that Janice did give birth to a little baby girl. So the couple now have a baby to look after. And I feel like this just makes the whole story so much worse that there is a baby in this house oh god so after the baby is born cameron is now thinking right now is my time to get my sex life so cameron goes out onto the streets he starts talking to a few women he actually starts to stalk a few women as well and he takes their photos i'm like oh God, he's just being really creepy, okay? But he never attempts to abduct any of the women that he stalks. I don't know why. I, I don't know if they fit his preferred profile. I, I don't know. But he doesn't attempt to abduct any of these women. And then one day, just a few weeks after, Janice, Cameron, and their new baby are in the car out for a drive. And this is on the 19th of May, 1977. And this is when Cameron spots Colleen Stan. Colleen was just 20 years old at this point and she was hitchhiking. So she was just on the side of the road and Cameron saw her. Colleen Stan was born on the 31st of December, 1956. She grew up in Riverside, California. She was the oldest of three sisters. Her parents did divorce when she was younger, but she had a pretty stable childhood, a pretty happy one. She did really well in school and she was really close to her sisters. After Colleen graduated from school, she did work a few just odd jobs and she also had a very short marriage after she had graduated high school but it didn't last long and they did get a divorce and it was around this time after this that she decided that she just wanted to move to a different location she wanted a fresh start so she moved to Eugene Oregon where she was going to live with some of her friends and then it was at this point in her life that unfortunately she met Cameron Hooker so it was the 19th of May and it was one of Colleen's friends birthday day who lived back in Riverside, California, which was about 400 miles away from where she lived in Eugene. And Colleen decided that she wanted to go down to her friend's house and surprise her for her birthday. However, the morning that she had decided to leave to go and surprise her friend, she got in the car in the morning but her car wouldn't start. And Colleen was like, oh my God, what am I gonna do? She had her heart set on going to surprise a friend. She had all of these plans. She didn't know what to do because her car didn't start. So Colleen decided that she was going to hitchhike from Eugene all the way down to Riverside, California. Now, this to me sounds absolutely crazy. <laughs> <laughs> just the whole hitchhiking thing in general seems absolutely crazy, but this is the 70s and hitchhiking was quite common, which is bizarre. Like what but Colleen did used to hitchhike quite often she was very comfortable doing it she thought she was a really good judge of character as well so she never got into a car or a truck where she didn't like have a good feeling about the driver so she was completely comfortable hitchhiking so this is what she decided to do the first leg of the journey went really smoothly she hitched a ride with some truckers who were driving down the i-5 and she makes it all the way to red bluff California. So she's now in Red Bluff and she only has about 100 miles left of her journey. So Colleen is standing on the side of the road, 
do you have your like some out when you're trying to hitch a ride? Um, I don't know, maybe she was doing this, trying to get people's attention. And a couple of people had pulled over to give her a ride, but Colleen didn't have a very good feeling at all about the people driving these couple of cars. Like one car was full of rowdy men and Colleen was just like, yeah, no, that's not a good idea. And I don't know why she didn't like the other car that pulled over, but she didn't. So then a third car pulls over and it is a young couple with a baby. And Colleen sees that they're a young couple. They're not too much older than her. They have a baby. So first impression, she's like, okay, this seems pretty good. And they tell Colleen that they will take her wherever she wants to go. And I'm sure you've guessed it by now, but the couple in that car were Cameron and Janice. Oh God, and this is literally where I wish I had a time turner because I wish I could go to this place and um, tell Colleen, do not get into this car because she has absolutely no idea just how dangerous they are. So Colleen gets into the back of the car and Cameron drives off. Now, as Cameron is driving, Colleen starts to notice that Cameron just keeps looking at her in the rearview mirror. Colleen can constantly feel Cameron's eyes on her, but she does keep telling herself, like, everything is okay, like, I'm overthinking this, nothing is going to happen, but she's really creeped out. So as they're driving, they do stop at a gas station and Colleen gets out of the car to use the bathroom. Now, when she is using the bathroom, she has that little voice inside, the little intuition voice that we all have, and that voice is telling her to get out, jump out of the window, run away, get away from this couple as fast as you can. But Colleen ignores this voice. She doesn't listen to it because she thinks that she's just being over the top, that there is absolutely nothing to worry about. So after she's finished in the bathroom, she goes back to Cameron's car and gets back in. Now, when she got back into the car, there was a large wooden box on the seat next to her. It was like this wooden crate thing. And Colleen was thinking, what the hell is that? Like that was not there before. And again, she is a little bit creeped out by this, but she's just telling herself, it's a wooden box. It's nothing, like there is nothing wrong. Cameron drives off and they're driving for another 20 minutes or so when Cameron says to Colleen, me and the family wanna stop off soon because we've been told that there are some ice caves around this area and we really wanna go see them, do you mind? And Colleen feels like, how can she say no? She is in a situation where this couple have been kind enough to give her a lift. Like she is in no position to say, no, you can't go to the ice caves. So Colleen is like, yeah, that's fine. Let's go to the ice caves. Again, she is feeling a bit creeped out, but she is still ignoring that inner voice. And to be honest, at this point, like what is she supposed to do? She's in the back of the car. It's a three door car. She can't exactly jump out of the car. So they're driving for a little bit longer when Cameron then turns off the highway onto a dirt road. They continue driving down this dirt road for about a mile until there is absolutely no one around. Cameron then pulls over and Colleen is thinking, okay, what the hell is going on? Because there are definitely no ice caves around here. Janice and the baby get out of the car. I know, I feel like we all need to remember here that there is a baby in this car as this is happening. Cameron also gets out of the car and they leave Colleen in the car on her own. So Colleen is just left in the back of this car and then all of a sudden Cameron jumps back into the car and he's holding a knife. He holds the knife to Colleen's throat and he tells her that you are going to do 
everything that I tell you to. And of course, Colleen is absolutely terrified for her life at this point. He is holding a knife to her throat, so of course she agrees. Cameron then blindfolds her and I, oh God, this this box. So the box on the seat next to Colleen, he liked to call it the head box and we are gonna be calling it the head box from this moment on. That box that was on the seat, Cameron had made into this box that was gonna go over someone's head and this box was on hinges. So it did kind of open up and there was a hole where it went around someone's neck and the box was completely lined with carpet and my mind just can't like even comprehend what that would have even felt like. I mean, I don't suffer with claustrophobia but I think anyone would like with that over the head and Cameron had lined this box with carpet so it would muffle any kind of sound so even if Colleen was screaming which she was no one would be able to hear her so Cameron placed this box on Colleen's head he then latched the hinges shut and he forced Colleen to lie down on the back seat of the car with this box on her head which I've got to stress as well weighed 20 pounds this box 20 pounds can you imagine a 20 pound wooden box lined with carpet on your head she's also blindfolded all of her senses have been completely cut off so after Cameron has done this Janice and the baby get back in the car so then the whole family drive off with Colleen in the back in this box and they drive back to their family home in Red Bluff, California. So when they arrive outside the family home, they do wait for it to go dark so none of the neighbors will see. So as soon as it's dark, Cameron and the rest of the family go into the house. Cameron collects Colleen. He takes the box off of her head. She is still blindfolded so she cannot see a single thing. And he leads Colleen into the house and he takes her down to the basement, which is his torture chamber. He then forces Colleen to stand on an ice box so her hands can reach the beam that he installed in the ceiling to handcuff her hands to. He then completely strips her naked by cutting off her clothes. And then he kicks the ice box away from under Colleen. So Colleen right now is being suspended by her wrists and she is completely naked. Colleen at this point is screaming for her life screaming because she's terrified and this is when Cameron starts to whip Colleen and he's whipping Colleen because let's face it that is what gets him off but he's also whipping Colleen as a form of punishment almost to keep her quiet so when Colleen does stop screaming Cameron leaves the basement and he returns shortly after with Janice and I just can't even believe what happens next um, it just makes me feel really sick. So with Colleen still suspended in the middle of this basement, Cameron and Janice then have sex beneath her. It's, it makes you feel sick, doesn't it? So after Cameron and Janice finish, um, ugh, Janice and Cameron do leave Colleen in the basement on her own for a little while. She's still suspended by her wrists and I cannot even imagine how painful that alone would be to be suspended by your wrists. Um, and a short while after, Cameron does return to the basement to carry out his next stage of his plan. Cameron lets Colleen down from the ceiling, but then he places the head box back on top of her. He then moves Colleen to another box that he made. Do you remember that I said that he made a coffin-like box? Well, he moves Colleen to the coffin-like box and he forces Colleen to lie down in this box. And she still has that other box on her head. So Colleen is lying down in this coffin-like box with the other box on her head. 
Cameron then chains her wrists to the side of the box so she literally cannot move even an inch before Cameron just leaves her in the box with the box on her head for the whole night in complete darkness. And Colleen was struggling to breathe. <laughs> she was struggling in a lot of ways, but she was struggling to breathe because the box on her head, it was just so full and there was just so much carpet in there that she was just really struggling to breathe. It was really hot. Can you even, oh my God, it's just, Oh my God, I can't. And I just have to stop for a second because nobody can even imagine what that would be like. That is complete darkness. So Colleen was left in the coffin-like box with the head box on as well for 22 to 23 hours every single day. She was only ever let out of her box for a tiny little bit of food and water and also for Cameron to torture her. She wasn't even allowed to use the bathroom. <laughs> Just a simple human right. She wasn't allowed. She had a bedpan in the coffin-like box that she had to use. Cameron told Colleen in the very beginning, the first day of torture, that if Colleen screamed, Cameron would cut her vocal cords and he wouldn't hesitate to do it because he's done it before. And Colleen believed him. I mean, I believe him. Why wouldn't you believe him? I mean, look at the things that he's already capable of. And this is what Colleen's life was like for the first few weeks of her captivity. Being kept in that box for 22 to 23 hours every single day, only being let out for torture. So the weeks were going by and Colleen's family back in Riverside, California, which was roughly about 560 or so miles from Red Bluff, California, which is where Colleen was being held. Colleen's parents received a phone call from one of Colleen's housemaids back in Oregon and they told Colleen's parents, we don't know where Colleen is. Like she never returned from her trip. So Colleen's parents were getting a little bit worried about their daughter, but they weren't too worried at this point because they just thought Colleen has gone to surprise her friend. She's probably stayed for a little bit longer. This is the 70s, no mobile phones or anything like that. So Colleen's parents were a little bit worried, but they weren't too concerned until they got this phone call. And as soon as they got this phone call, they immediately left and went to Westwood, California. And on the way to Westwood, California, they stopped in many different towns along the way. They spoke to as many people as they could, showed Colleen's picture to as many people as they could. They went to police stations as well in all of these different towns to report her missing, but no one had even seen Colleen. No one had any information. And it was at this point that Colleen's parents did fear the worst. They thought she has either been killed or she's joined a cult. And I just think that that is crazy that her parents thought that she joined a cult. And then I remembered it is the 70s. So then I was kind of like, okay, and we're also in California. So I was like, okay, I can kind of understand, but that's crazy, isn't it? That they jumped to her joining a cult. Meanwhile, Janice and Cameron are just living their life as if nothing is going on, as if they are not keeping someone hostage in their basement. Cameron continues to go to work and Janice stays at home to look after their eight month old baby. And as soon as Cameron would return home from work, he would go straight to the basement and he would do some of the most unspeakable things a human could do to another human. And whilst he was torturing Colleen as well, he was taking pictures of everything as trophies so he could relive this moment at a later date. And Cameron, if you hadn't figured out, is pretty good at building things. He's a pretty good handyman, unfortunately. And he built another device that he called the wreck, which can only be described as a medieval torture stretching machine 
thing. Like, I don't even know how to describe it. And he would lie Colleen on this machine and he would attach her hands and her feet to the four different corners of this machine. And then he literally would stretch her out. He would also attach electrical wires to her to give her electric shocks. And this was a part of the daily routine. In the first month that Colleen was held captive, she lost 22 pounds. And I'm honestly not surprised because she was barely getting any food. And this next point, it's not really a big deal in the grand scheme of things, if you think about it, but oh, it just hit me really hard that Colleen was allowed to have her first bath in August. So that is approximately about four months after she was abducted. And I don't know why, but that just really hit me. I was just like, oh my God, Cameron is really stripping Colleen of basic human rights, of basic human needs. She has been tortured every single day for four months, she has been lying in a box for 22 to 23 hours every single day. And she's only now allowed to have her first wash. So Colleen spent pretty much the whole of summer and autumn of 1977 in the coffin-like box with the head box on as well. But then in November, she was given a little bit more, I don't even want to call it freedom because it's not freedom at all. She was allowed out of the box for a little bit longer this time. And that is because Cameron and Janice wanted Colleen to do chores around the house. But Colleen had to do these chores naked. So then this became the daily routine. Colleen was let out of the box to do chores naked. And then she was tortured by Cameron on his various different devices. And then she was put back in the coffin-like box with the head box on for 22 hours a day. And then in January 1978, so this is eight months after she was abducted, Cameron finally took the blindfold off of Colleen. Because other than when she was doing chores, which was barely any time ever, Colleen was constantly blindfolded. She had no idea what her coffin-like box looked like, or even like the head box, like what the inside looked like. She had no idea what the torture chamber looked like. She had no idea. She was blindfolded the whole time. She had total sensory deprivation. She couldn't see anything. She basically couldn't hear anything either when she was in that head box. She couldn't move when she was in the coffin-like box. She had basically no human interaction. That in itself is unspeakable. That is absolutely horrific. That is torture. And that is on top of everything else that Cameron is doing to her. And then on the 25th of January, 1978, Cameron revealed to Colleen a secret, that he was a part of a secret, powerful organization called The Company. And The Company consisted of very rich, very powerful people, people in powerful positions like judges, police. And The Company would enslave women for fun and for profit. And they used high-tech surveillance to track all of their enslaved women to monitor them and to also make sure that they didn't escape. Basically, The Company were always watching. And if a woman did escape from The Company, The Company would retaliate and kill that woman, but also kill her friends and family. And Colleen believed him. I mean, why wouldn't she? I mean, after everything that she has been through, she's been in captivity now for eight, possibly nearly nine months at this point. Why wouldn't she believe this? I mean, if you think about everything that she has been through, having something exist like the company is not too far-fetched. And unfortunately, there are things that exist. They may not be called the company, but there are those things that exist. So Colleen obviously is terrified at this point. She thinks that this company is watching her. And then after telling Colleen about the company, 
Cameron reveals a contract. And this is not just any contract, this is a slave contract. And in the contract, Cameron has called himself Michael Powers because that was his name in the company. And the contract basically said that Michael Powers had complete control over Colleen's body, her soul, all of her possessions. Basically, she was signing her life away. And it also said in the contract that Colleen must submit herself and do everything that her master required. Also in the contract, it said that Colleen would no longer be called Colleen. Instead, she would be called K. And I mean just the letter K, just the letter K, which is just another thing, isn't it? That is absolutely disgusting because they are completely getting rid of her identity. They're completely stripping her of absolutely everything. And because Colleen believed that the company were watching, she felt that she had no choice but to sign this contract. And that is exactly what she did. Colleen signed this contract. Michael Powers, i.e. Cameron, signed this contract. And Janice also signed the contract as a witness. And then in February 1978, not long after this contract was signed, Janice changes her mind and says that Cameron is now allowed to have sex with Colleen because remember she didn't allow that before well now she's saying you can have sex with your sex slave I know nice of her isn't it and I think we know what is going to happen so just giving a warning now um, we are going to be talking about sexual assault following Janice's change of mind Colleen was now being raped on a regular basis. And that was on top of everything else as well because Cameron didn't stop any of the other torture. And now this is Colleen's new normal. She is subject to torture. She has to do chores around the house. She is naked quite a lot of the time. She is spending most of the day in the coffin-like box. And now she's also being raped on a daily basis. So a couple of months after Colleen was subject to sexual assault, Cameron and Janice decided to move house and they moved from their home to a trailer. And I honestly don't know why they moved. Couldn't find an answer because to me, it doesn't really make sense. Like why would Cameron wanna leave this torture chamber that he built? Because now he's moving to a trailer that doesn't have a basement. So I don't know if they came into like money problems and they had to move, like I don't know. So obviously there was no basement in the trailer and they had to figure out, okay, how are we going to hold Colleen captive in the trailer? So in the trailer, they had a waterbed, which were very popular in the 70s. Do they even still exist now? Like, do they? I don't know. So this waterbed was on like a wooden frame situation and Cameron saw the wooden frame and he thought, hmm, this would be perfect to hold Colleen. He basically got the coffin-like box that Colleen stayed in and he slotted it under the waterbed. And going forward, this is where Colleen would stay. She would be in the coffin-like box underneath the bed that Cameron and Janice slept in every single night. And unfortunately, the daily routine of Colleen didn't change once they moved into a trailer. She was still spending most of her time in the box under the waterbed. She was only let out to do chores and being tortured. And this situation went on for two years. And throughout these two years, Colleen was given a little bit more freedom. But during these two years, Colleen was allowed outside of her box a little bit more. She was allowed to do some gardening. She was introduced to the neighbours. And get this, Colleen was even allowed to go jogging around the neighbourhood. 
on her own because Cameron was so cocky and so arrogant and he had so much control over Colleen that he knew that Colleen would not try and escape. And he was completely right because Colleen never tried to escape because she believed that the company were watching. And during this time in the trailer, during those two years, Cameron and Janice had another child. Now there's two children in this trailer as Colleen is being tortured on a daily basis. And I haven't even told you the sickest part of them having another child. So Janice decided to give birth at home and she gave birth on the waterbed and Colleen was underneath the waterbed in her box as Janice gave birth. And then in December of 1980, three years, over three years after Colleen was first abducted, Colleen was given a Christmas present by Cameron. And her Christmas present was that she was allowed to call her family. And I'm not really sure of the motives of Cameron for doing this. Like, why would he allow Colleen to phone her family and speak to them? But I do just think it shows how arrogant and how cocky he is. Because he knows that he has so much control over Colleen that she is not going to say a word. It's almost like a power trip as well, almost like a test to see how much control he does have over Colleen. So Colleen calls her family and Cameron was absolutely right. She did not say a word. So when Colleen phoned her family, her sister answered and Colleen's sister could not believe that Colleen was alive. And the conversation didn't exactly last very long. Colleen didn't say too much, but she did say that she was happy. She said that she was safe, but Colleen didn't really say too much more than that. She didn't give any details or anything like that because Colleen was really worried that the company were listening. And after the phone call had finished, Colleen's sister didn't know any details. She didn't know where her sister was. She didn't know who she was with or anything like that but at least she knew that she was alive. And this was a huge relief for Colleen's family. But after this phone call, they were convinced that she had joined a cult and that is why she couldn't really give answers to anything. So in Cameron's eyes, this phone call was a success. This proved to him just how much control he had over Colleen. And he is feeling so cocky right now, like he's on top of the world. So Cameron, clearly on a power trip, decided to go one step further. And he decided that he would let Colleen go home and visit her family. Cameron was going to drive Colleen home to see her family. I just, I can't believe it. He is so confident that he has full control. And very sadly, he does have full control of Colleen. Cameron told Colleen that the company had been watching her and they were very pleased with her because she was very well behaved. And therefore they wanted to give her a little treat by letting her go and visit her family. But the company would be watching, they would be outside of the house, and if Colleen said anything, the company would kill her and her family. So in March 1981, this is three months after the phone call at Christmas, Cameron drives Colleen to Riverside, California, to visit her family. Colleen was ordered to call Cameron Mike Powers, which is the name that was used in that slave contract. Colleen was also told to tell her family that Mike Powers had a work conference in San Diego and that is why he couldn't stay at the house. And she was also ordered to introduce Mike Powers as her fiance. How sick is this? Like literally, this makes my blood boil. Like, oh my God. Colleen's family had to interact with the man that has abducted their daughter and is subjecting her to the most horrific torture and conditions a human can be in. It's sick. It's absolutely disgusting. So Cameron dropped Colleen off. They had a little introduction and everything. And then Cameron left Colleen 
with her family and he told her that he would be picking her up in 24 hours. And during that 24 hours, Colleen did not utter a single word about what was happening to her. And Colleen's family could tell that there was something going on because Colleen wasn't really saying much, but Colleen's family didn't wanna push her too hard. They didn't wanna question her too much because they were convinced that she had joined a cult and they didn't wanna push her too far because they were scared that they would drive her further into the cult and that she would never visit them again. They were honestly just over the moon that they were even seeing her. So Cameron came back after 24 hours to pick her up. And when he came and picked her up, he was obviously pretending to be her fiance. One of Colleen's family members took a picture of Colleen and Mike Powers, Cameron. And the picture is of the two of them and Colleen has her arms draped around Cameron and they're both smiling and they both look happy. This picture has haunted me. I'm not gonna lie. Like I cannot get it out of my brain. Like any picture that I have ever seen from any case, not just this one, this photo has haunted me more than any other picture. And at first I didn't know why, like I didn't know why this picture haunted me so much, but then I realized that if I saw that picture and I didn't know the context of what was going on, I would have thought that that picture was of a couple. They look very happy, they look genuinely happy or maybe really close friends. And when you actually know the context behind that photo, when you know what that man is doing to that woman, it makes me sick to my stomach. So then after that photo was taken, Cameron and Colleen say their goodbyes to Colleen's family and they both drive off and they head straight back to Cameron's home in Red Bluff, California. And following this visit to Colleen's family, Cameron's behavior and attitude completely changed. He did a 180. So before the visit, Colleen had a little bit more freedom. She was allowed out of the box a little bit more. So Cameron decided that he wanted to keep Colleen back in the coffin-like box for 23 hours every single day. And I don't know why he did this. I honestly can't tell you. I personally think that he was scared. I think he probably regretted letting Colleen go and see her family. I think he probably thought at this point, oh my God, I've given her too much freedom. She actually might escape now. So Colleen is now back in complete isolation, sensory deprivation, just complete, utter torture. And this carried on for a further three years. Colleen would spend 23 hours a day in the box under the bed, only being let out for a little bit of food, a little bit of water, and then also Cameron's sexual assault and torture for three years. And then in 1983, we are skipping ahead a few years, obviously, Colleen was let out of the box again. She was given a little bit more freedom again. She was allowed to do chores again. She was allowed to spend a little bit of time outside of the house. And she was also allowed to look after the kids of Janice and Cameron. And this is something else that I just cannot stop thinking about with this case, is those children in that house what must their lives have been like? Were they aware of anything that was going on? Were they being abused or anything happening to them? The older girl was around six years old at this point. At six years old, you are aware of things. I mean, the family were living in a trailer at this point. Surely she heard something, seen something. And they say that the first seven years of a child's life are really, really crucial and important for development. It truly sickens me to think about the traumatizing situation that those children were in. So Colleen was allowed to look after the children again and she was also ordered by Cameron to go out and get a job. I know, 
what clearly he's very cocky again that he has complete control of Colleen I suspect that they were maybe struggling for money so maybe this was the motivation behind forcing Colleen to get a job so she did go out and get a job she got a job as a cleaner and she was forced to give every single penny that she earned to Cameron and then what's completely sick is that Colleen would go out to work she would come home be subject to torture and sexual assault by Cameron and then forced back into her box underneath that waterbed every single night. And I know what a lot of you are probably thinking because I thought it as well, why didn't you run away? Why didn't you escape? But she was so terrified that the company were watching her. And I don't think any of us can even judge her for not escaping. We haven't got a clue what she was going through. I don't know how she survived, I really don't. And it's at this point that Cameron decides that he is no longer satisfied with just having one sex slave. He decides that he wants to abduct more women and have more sex slaves. So he starts to build a dungeon in the backyard so he can keep all of his sex slaves in this dungeon. And he makes Colleen help him build it. He tells Colleen that he's going to imprison many women and Colleen was going to be the one that would have to train them up so they could be as good a sex slave as she was. I hope there is a special place in hell for this man um, because he's still alive, by the way. Yeah. So we're now in 1984. This is a year after Colleen is let out of the box again and seven years after the initial abduction. Cameron is spending more and more time with Colleen and he's actually starting to form a really strong attachment to her. So much so that he wants to make Colleen his second wife. And Janice doesn't exactly like this idea. This is when Janice starts to become very jealous of the relationship between Cameron and Colleen. Janice had also started to have some revelations of her own recently. So Janice had recently started to attend church and Colleen was actually pretty religious as well. So now that Janice was attending church, she started to speak to Colleen about the Bible. And this is when Janice started to feel guilty about what they were doing to Colleen. <laughs> I mean, it's about bloody time. And Janice decides that enough is enough. She is going to tell Colleen the truth. And the truth is the company does not exist. So she told Colleen that the company did not exist. She said that there was no such thing as the company, that Cameron had made it up to scare her. Now, it's not exactly known the motivations of Janice at this point. Like, what was her motivation for finally coming clean? Like, did she actually feel guilty or was she just jealous of the relationship between Cameron and Colleen and she just wanted Colleen out of the picture? We don't know. But either way, the truth was finally out there. Colleen finally knew that the company did not exist. There was nothing actually preventing her from escaping from Cameron. So following this bombshell, Colleen was like, right, that's it. I'm out of here. Finding out that the company did not exist changed everything for Colleen and it gave her the confidence to finally escape. So Cameron wasn't home at this point. So Colleen literally just walked out the door. She got to a bus station and she called her dad and she told him that she was coming home. Colleen even phoned Cameron. I know, I couldn't believe this. She phoned Cameron to tell him that she was leaving. And apparently Cameron burst into tears. He was crying like a little baby and he was begging her to stay. He really was upset. <laughs> it's like, oh, poor Cameron. But Colleen 
thankfully didn't fall for Cameron and his tricks and his manipulation and she went home. But what is crazy is that Colleen did not tell a single person what had happened to her. She kept it all to herself. She didn't say anything. She just wanted to try and put what had happened to her behind her and start again. And apparently once she got home, when she was back living with her family, she stayed in touch with Cameron and Janice. Colleen has said that she came to an agreement with Janice that the two of them together were going to try and reform Cameron. Like that's possible. So I don't know if there is some form of Stockholm Syndrome going on here. There has to be. Because Colleen, after everything she has been through, she wants to see the good in Cameron, which, um, spoiler, there is no good in Cameron. But soon things were about to come crashing down around Cameron. So approximately three months after Colleen left, Janice also decided that she had had enough. So Janice went to see her pastor at her church and she confessed everything, told the pastor, everything about Colleen, about the torture, the sexual assault, about how she was kept in a box pretty much the entire time. And that poor pastor, I mean, oh my God, he just woke up on that day and he thought it was gonna be a normal day. After Janice confessed all of this, he contacted the police immediately. So when the police started to investigate this case, at first, they did not believe Janice because they were just like, yeah, this is too far-fetched, like this is not true. But as they were investigating, they did interview Colleen, they interviewed Janice, they also went to the trailer where Cameron and Janice lived and they found the box under the waterbed, they found all of the equipment that Cameron had built, they found the head box, they also found the pictures of Colleen like when she was being tortured that Cameron had took of her. And then they also found a copy of the slave contract and oh god, I mean just wow, I mean I'm just thankful that Cameron didn't destroy all of that because this case does sound far-fetched. Like if there was no physical evidence, I don't know whether Cameron would have been convicted, but thankfully there was evidence and he was arrested and charged with abduction, false imprisonment and rape. So the case went to trial, both Colleen and Janice took the stand and both of them delivered incredibly emotional testimonies and they both talked about the abuse that both of them had suffered at the hands of Cameron. For Colleen especially, I just can't even imagine how traumatic that would have been to take the stand and relive this in front of a courtroom full of people. And then when Janice took the stand, she dropped another huge bombshell. So when she took the stand, she talked about how she was also a victim of Cameron, of all the abuse that she went through. But then she also said that before the two of them abducted Colleen, Cameron had already murdered someone else. I know. I bet you thought this story was done, didn't you? So Janice said that in 1976, so approximately about a year or just a few months before the abduction of Colleen, Cameron had abducted, raped and tortured a young woman called Marie. He then shot her in the stomach with a pellet gun. All Janice said was that Marie disappeared after being shot in the stomach with this pellet gun and she believed that Cameron had murdered her. But there is no actual physical evidence to prove that Cameron did murder Marie, even though there is very strong suspicion that she was of a similar age to Colleen. She also looks kind of similar as well. It's very obvious that Cameron has a type. She went missing in Red Bluff, California. And just the pure fact that Janice 
knew this woman had disappeared. She knew the exact time that she had disappeared, where this woman had disappeared. That wasn't public knowledge. So there is no doubt in my mind that Cameron also is a murderer. But like I said, there's no body, there's no actual evidence, so he couldn't be charged for this. So then it was the turn of the defense of Cameron and they tried to say that Colleen was at the house willingly. And because she had never tried to escape, she was a willing participant in Cameron's sexual fantasies. And it's like, of course she never tried to escape. You threatened to kill her entire family. But thankfully the jury did not buy this defense because it's a load of crap. And Cameron was found guilty on all charges and was sentenced to 104 years in prison. Also in the trial, I probably should have mentioned this earlier, the prosecution had reconstructed the waterbed and the coffin-like box and they had placed it in the middle of the courtroom and that box stayed in that courtroom for the entirety of the trial, just so the jury could see the kind of conditions that Colleen was living in. So after Cameron was sentenced to 104 years, he did say this, I do have a quote from him. He said, I want to thank the judge. I have a library, a gym, and the time to enjoy them. And it's better than living with those two women. Really, the nerve of this man. And then it comes to Janice, because I'm sure you're probably wondering like, what happened to Janice? Surely she must have been punished in some kind of way for her part. And the answer to that would be no, she wasn't. Janice was granted full immunity if she testified against Cameron. I struggle with this, I do. I go back and forth on what I think. I don't really know what I think, but I do struggle with Janice because I am under no illusion. I know that Janice is a victim in this as well. But there was definitely a time where she did become a perpetrator, a willing participant in the torture and imprisonment of Colleen. You can be a victim and a perpetrator at the same time. And I really do get annoyed at the whole immunity thing. Like, oh, you'll get immunity if you testify. Like it really, really annoys me. I understand why they do it because at the end of the day, Cameron is the bigger danger to society. It is more important to get him behind bars. I do get it. The fact that Janice just got full immunity doesn't really sit right with me. But I do keep flip-flopping all over the place on what I think about Janice. So you'll have to let me know what you think about Janice in the comments. And then, we do have a final twist to this story. It's never ending, isn't it? So Cameron became eligible for parole in March of 2021. I know, last year. So because of COVID-19, there were attempts to reduce the prison population and people became eligible for parole a lot earlier than they should have done. And Cameron Hooker was one of those people. I know, can you believe it? He almost got out. However, thankfully, the district attorney put a stop to this, thankfully. Because obviously he didn't get released in March of 2021. He's still in prison. However, oh God, I hate to say this, but there is a chance that Cameron will be released. But right now, Cameron is being re-evaluated as a sexually violent predator. And if he is found to be a sexually violent predator, which I kind of think he is, so that should be pretty easy, they can hold him in prison for a lot longer. But if he is found not to be a sexually violent predator, Cameron Hooker could be released this year in 2020. 
2022. So let's just all keep our fingers crossed, okay? Let's just all hope that that doesn't happen because we don't need that in 2022, okay? We don't. We want a good year, but this is still ongoing and I obviously can't tell you. So what about Colleen? Where is she now? Well, after the trial, she tried to start her life again and she has tried to move forward. She has gone on to get a degree. She did get married. She has a child. She has a daughter and she has also joined an organization that helps women who are victims of abuse. Colleen has given quite a few interviews about her experience and what she went through, which I did watch for my research. And even just watching her, it's impossible to even start to comprehend what she went through. In your mind, you can go anywhere and you can do anything, you know. And I've heard a lot of POWs say that they did the same thing I did. And you just have to go someplace else in your mind. You have to think good thoughts and nice thoughts. And I thought of my family. I went on picnics <laughs> with my family. I went on holidays with my family. I went to good and nice places. My heart really goes out to her. I hope that she was able to start her life again. And I honestly don't know how you can move on from something like that, like something that she went through. This case truly is one of the worst abduction cases I think I've ever heard. And I really hope that Cameron doesn't get out. I don't think he will. Like I really don't think he will. I mean, look at what he did. And if you're wondering where Janice is right now, I don't know. I can't tell you because Janice was given a new identity. So that was the case of Cameron Hooker, another absolutely unbelievable story. No matter how many cases I research, it never fails to blow my mind that such terrible people can inflict this torture on human beings. You can't wrap your head around cases like Cameron Hooker. This is what I meant when I said this case is literally the stuff of nightmares. But what is so unbelievable is the fact that Cameron Hooker might actually get released. I first posted this YouTube video at the very beginning of 2022. And since posting it there, there has been one further update which occurred in June, which is that a trial date has now been set to determine if Cameron Hooker is a sexually violent predator. The trial will take place this coming September and it will happen in front of a jury and it's to determine whether or not he is a sexually violent predator. And if Cameron Hooker is found to be not a sexually violent predator, then there is a chance that he could be released, which is honestly unbelievable. Like how is that even possible. If he is found not a sexually violent predator and he is released, he will only be 68 or 69 depending on when he's released, which I'm sorry is still an age where he poses a threat to the public. It's not like he's nearly 100 if you know what I mean. He's still young enough to be a danger to people. And also the kind of crimes that Cameron committed, how is it even possible that that trial is even happening, if you know what I mean. Like, why are we entertaining the prospect of releasing somebody so dangerous? I just really hope that he is found to be a sexually violent predator because I think we all know that he is. And I really do truly hope that Cameron Hooker is never 
released from prison because what he put Colleen through, he deserves to be in prison for the rest of his life, but also he is still a danger to the public. And that brings us to the end of this episode, which was an incredibly heavy, dark episode. Go watch or listen to something happy. Go cheer yourself up. You need it after a case like that. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening today. Subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of The Criminal Makeup. And I would love it if you could leave a five-star review if you enjoyed the show. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please take the time to look at the description for this episode for some helpful resources. Special thanks to my producers at Audio Boom Studios, and I'll see you all in the next one.